Hi, and thank you, everybody, for joining the ClearBridge webcast on low volatility. Uh, my name is Jeff Schulze. I'm the investment strategist for ClearBridge Investments, and I'm joined here with Mike Kagan, who co-manages the appreciation strategy. A little bit of background on Mike. He joined the predecessor organization in 1994 and has over 31 years of industry experience. Thanks, Mike, for joining me here today. Jeff, it's good to be here. So, Mike, the market has stalled somewhat since reaching post-election highs. It appears that investors are becoming less sanguine about potential positive policy impacts driving the market, at least over the next year or two. What's your view on developments in Washington, and how important are they to deliver strong market returns in the near term? Jeff, you're so impatient, calling a 5.5% rise in the first quarter stalling out. <laughs> According to my math, that means that the market's going to be up, what, 22% a year if it keeps on compounding at that? Well, we could, we could only hope. Well, I'll take stalling like that all the time. <laughs> That sounds like soaring. No, but seriously, the uh, the market has been absolutely terrific the last year, and particularly the last quarter, and so it's probably due for a little bit of rest here. And so if that's stalling, that's just fine. Also, the market is very expensive right now. On Warren Buffett's measure, it's over two times GDP, which is one of the highest, if not the highest levels that we've ever seen in history. The P.E. ratio is stiff in the high teens, and it's doing that off of all-time record operating margins. And so... One could argue that the market is rather expensive and that gains going forward here are going to be challenging. And what they require, most of all, is earnings growth, which has been pretty mediocre the last few years. So I think that the reason that the market has been so enthusiastic about Mr. Trump and his policies are that they hope that they will be inflationary and that they will accelerate earnings per share growth. And if we get that, then things can be hunky-dory and the market can keep on going up. So I think that the political landscape is very important for the market right now. And it's quite possible that we will back and fill a little bit until we get some better visibility on things like the tax uh, cut and the tax policy that's coming forward, especially given that it seems like it's been delayed. Now, Mike, I just want to play devil's advocate here for, for just a second. So you, you mentioned Warren Buffett's favorite measure of determining whether the stock market is expensive or cheap, the, the so-called Buffett ratio. Uh, right after the election, Warren put over $20 billion to work in the equity markets. Uh, so even though his metric might look a little bit expensive, you know, he felt good enough to, to put money to work at, at higher valuations. And, you know, if you think about the market right now, uh, as we speak, the market's up close to 10 percent since the election. But this rally really began uh, back in January with the bottoming up of earnings and uh, I'm sorry, of the energy recession. The market's up almost 28 percent as of today. So I'd make the argument that although you have seen, you know, some market action due to Trump and the elevated expectations for earnings with what his administration will bring to the table. I believe that a lot of this momentum that we've seen has really been a bottom to that earnings recession and, and a bottom to the, the energy route that we saw last year. It uh, could be. It could also just simply be that stocks are the best alternative and that bonds are not so attractive. And so if you think that things are going to be inflationary because of Trump's policies or because of the economy getting better, then bonds maybe have secularly bottomed in terms of rates. And if that's the case, then you don't want to own so much in the way of bonds and you got to put your money someplace. And maybe the stock market is the best alternative. And so again, it comes down to this whole issue of how inflationary things going to be. The economy is good. Unemployment has been terrific. That's probably the single most important number. Right. And in March and in February, we saw a tremendous numbers of economic indicators that hit highs for the cycle. And so one would certainly argue that the economy in, in the United States is pretty good. And yet, earnings per share growth has been mediocre, and also GDP growth has been mighty slow. 
So despite hitting all those new highs on those indicators, we're only going to get one-ish, maybe a little bit over one-ish percent GDP growth in the first quarter. So I guess the good news is that it's been a long cycle and it's been a slow cycle, and we probably don't have the excesses that we've seen in previous cycles. So for example, housing, which probably needs a million and a half units of uh, new sales every year in order to meet average demand through the cycle, is only now just above a million two. And so there's certainly a lot of pent-up demand in housing that could keep on powering that portion of the economy going forward. The auto sector would probably be the only sector where I have any concerns. Their sales seem to be peaking out, and it's uh, at 17 and a half million units. That's a, a pretty stiff number of units to have for an extended period of time. We're seeing incentives begin to creep up, and maybe they'll even gallop up here. We'll see. And also on the subprime side of autos, the lending has gotten more aggressive. And so we're beginning to see some risk in those statistics. In terms of risk generally in the economy, that's, that's another factor that concerns me. When you look at BAA spreads, which are an excellent indicator of the bond markets feeling about risk, they're very low right now. If you look at the VIX, which is a measure of volatility of the stock market, again, it's very low right now. Yeah, especially and so, after the election. Yes. So this, this combination of high valuations and very low risk seems to indicate that, well, the market seems very good, very it's feeling very good about things right now. Compl a, complacence. A lot of complacency. Yes, that's the risk. Well, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, housing. And uh, one of the metrics, of course, that we look at at ClearBridge and able to determine whether a recession is on the horizon is housing permits. Housing permits tend to dip down before each recession about 18 months prior. And housing-related activity makes, makes up about 16% of our GDP. So the direction of permits is really important. And it's good to know that they're still firmly in an uptrend, which would signal a, at least a continuation of this slow growth recovery, similar to what we've seen this uh, the last seven to eight years. And even broader than that, that uh, leading economic indicators index that I showed you on Friday, I think, where it's hitting new highs. And the guys at ISS have indicated that the shortest time in history that you've ever had between a peak in the leading in that LEI and the recession is 18 months. And so, no, we're not looking for a recession right now. And we just had a, a new peak uh, versus 05's high last month, I believe. Yep. Let's move directions here for a second, Mike. Where would you say we're, you know, in this market cycle? You know, to, to use an analogy that everybody's heard before, you know, what inning are we in in this baseball game? And, you know, do you feel that there's a, a little bit more room for the market to run? Or should we be preparing for a transition to uh, some, maybe some volatile times or maybe some downward pressure on the markets? It feels to me like we're in the seventh inning and the market just took a big stretch. <laughs> Ready to go get your, your Cracker Jacks. Yep. And maybe take a little bit of a rest and digest some of the excitement that we've seen so far. Well, it would seem that uh, with, you know, not a lot of visibility on Trump's agenda, with PMIs seemingly peaking here and, you know, more than likely peaking in a lot of parts of the world, this would probably be an opportune time to see a little bit of market volatility and, and maybe a, a shallow correction. That's a possibility. Another thing is that there's this uh, heuristic that people use in the bond market, which is called three steps in a stumble. And we've had now three increases in rates by the Fed, and often the market stumbles a little bit after that. That doesn't necessarily mean a recession, but it means that maybe we just need a little bit of digestion time. Well, if you, you look at almost every recession in the post-World War II era, the Fed's fingerprints certainly have been on each one of them. And with the Fed, you know, tapering in 2013 and 14 and obviously raising rates now, it's only a matter of time until they, they tighten a little bit too much and the economy rolls over. Uh, I guess the biggest question on most investors' minds is whether that's going to be 2017, 18, or 19. 
Do you think the Fed will actually hit their dot plot projections this year and next year? I hope that they do, because that means that the economy is good. But my feeling on the Fed tightening is I don't think that it's just rates going higher that mean that things are tightening. To me, it's the Fed balance sheet and the size of that is when money begins to get tight. And one of the things that was very interesting about the notes from the March meeting was that the Fed discussed the likelihood of starting to shrink their balance sheet finally come December or so of this year. And so that's the point in time where I think you begin to get some tapping on the brakes by the Fed. So you think balance sheet normalization will begin in in December? It seems to be heading in that direction, yes. The one thing that makes me a little bit nervous is that the Fed has quite a bit of history in raising and lowering the Fed funds rate, but unwinding this balance sheet is going to be a relatively new endeavor. You know, I would make the argument that they will give as much forward guidance as the markets need, so there's not any disruption or there's there's no guesswork as to what the exact will taper or the uh, balance sheet reduction will actually be, and they'll probably do it at a rate that's a lot less than what the maturities of the MBS and the Treasuries are, are coming due over the next couple of years. You know, I would make the argument it's probably going to be anywhere from 15 to, to $25 billion per month versus a, a reinvestment rate right now at about $75 billion. Well, one of the things that argues for a slow pace is that a large proportion of the assets are in mortgages rather than in treasuries. And the Fed is quite accustomed to owning treasuries on its balance sheet, not so accustomed to owning mortgage backs. And shrinking that portion of the balance sheet could be very disruptive to the housing market. And I don't think that they want to disrupt as they shrink. Well, it's a a much less liquid market than, than treasuries, first of all. Yes. And so they own a much larger portion of that market. So, it's a, so I think that they're going to be judicious about things. Now, do you think that they will continue to do rate hikes along with balance sheet normalization, or will they take a pause, let the market digest, and see whether the market you know, sells off on the long end of the curve, or they, whether the market can process that and, and be comfortable moving forward? Do you, do you think it'll be a start and stop, or, or you'll, they'll continue on both avenues? I think a lot of that depends upon the success of the tax plan. If you were to have a tax plan that was inflationary, in particular, if it increased the deficit by an awful lot, then my guess is that the Fed would be probably inclined to be more aggressive. If you have no tax plan, or if you have a tax plan that's going to tend to be deficit neutral, then the Fed is likely to be a bit more relaxed about things. And, but do you do you see tax reform or tax cuts with a reform element on the horizon you know, this year or early next year? I'm hoping that it happens, and I'm expecting probably late this year, early next year, yes. Yeah, it seems like the timeline's been pushed back here with the failure of the AHCA. But yeah, I think that's the the timeline that that most investors expect right now. So, you know, low volatility strategies were very popular for much of 2016 uh, as investors sought refuge from volatile markets and seemingly, quote unquote, safe stocks. But this may have caused a crowding and and maybe even overvaluation in some pockets of the market, particularly your income-oriented sectors. While this dynamic shifted somewhat after the election as deep value cyclical industries outperformed, you know, do, you, do you foresee the market returning back to low volatility strategies? And, and also, how does the appreciation strategy navigate these differing market dynamics? Jeff, it's ironic you asked the question that way because the way that I look at things, if you were asking me this question a year ago, I would have been inclined to agree with you to some degree, which is that those defensive stocks had really been tremendous outperformers in the first quarter of the year and especially through the middle of February. And the more volatile and riskier type stocks and the smaller stocks have really underperformed. But since the end of February, we've had a risk on market where those stocks have really outperformed tremendously. And so whatever valuation 
that was maybe tilted in favor of the small cap and the, and the riskier stocks, it's completely flipped at this point. And it's actually the big cap high quality stocks that are the cheap stocks or more attractive stocks. And so actually it's a great environment for my strategy right now because those are the stocks that dominate my portfolio. Great points, Mike. But there was a second half to my question. I maybe wanted you to explore that a little bit deeper. You know, how does the appreciation strategy navigate these differing market dynamics? So just to review, the appreciation strategy is a strategy that intends to beat the market over a market cycle, but to do it with materially less risk. And we say about 20% less risk. And we use a couple of different risk measures on that, beta or standard deviation, which are kind of technical terms that are often used in the stock market. One that maybe will resonate a little bit better with a typical investor is something called downside capture. And downside capture means that if the market goes down 10% and we go down 8%, that's an 80% capture. And so the, the smaller that number, the better. You know, if you think about the, the most likely return profile of the market over the next three to four years is probably a, a market that returns single-digit returns, maybe low double-digit returns for the next couple. And then obviously no market cycle can last forever, which will be followed by a, a recession where really that, that approach, that risk-aware approach really comes into play. And I think from a broader perspective, this really speaks to active versus passive as well. You know, if you look where active has outperformed, it's, it's traditionally in these late ends of the, the market cycle where returns are harder to come by, where stock picking really starts to pay off. And then, of course, when the markets do roll over and you do see some volatility on the downside, active managers can either move away from areas of the market that are clearly overvalued. They can do their fundamental research, kick the tires, talk to management, make sure that the company profile is bulletproof. They'll be able to survive that downturn. And of course, add value by, by purchasing securities when you know visibility is at the lowest or expectations are the lowest as well. So I, I, don't, I, I believe that Active is uh, in a very good position at this point in the market cycle. And of course, a, a risk-aware approach is, is going to be you know, one of the facets of Active Management that is really primed to take off. Well, Jeff, I agree that I think that returns are going to be somewhat hard to get going forward. And it comes back to this whole issue of earnings growth and valuation. It's hard, given the absolute levels of valuation right now, to see the market increasing much and less earnings grow. And that's why the success of tax policy and Washington policy is so important, because if we can get an acceleration in earnings per share growth, then we can see further market gains. And then getting to the defensive aspects of things, one of the advantages that active managers have is that when we see something out there that signals danger, so for example, in 2007, when we saw those two Bear Stearns real estate funds get into trouble, hedge funds get into trouble, it was a real signal to us in the appreciation strategy to back off of our risk in the portfolio generally and in the financial sector specifically. And so it's a demonstration of how stock picking can really make a huge difference when things get messy. And, you know, if you think about the last couple of years, we've been in a uh, very low volatility regime. And I would argue that low volatility begets higher volatility when uh, when things do begin to normalize. And I think we may be close to that inflection point here over the next course of 2017 and the 2018. And the big reason that I've been advocating that we could see higher volatility around the corner is the, the normalization of Fed policy. You know, it's really been a one-way street with Fed policy for, for most of this market cycle. And the fact that you are seeing some follow-through with rate hikes, interest rates, higher rates at that will, will make it much more difficult for companies that have thin margins, that have a lot of leverage to be able to compete with 
companies that have done the right thing throughout this entire market cycle, really separating the winners and losers, which plays back into Active's hand as well. Well, one reason I think both of us feel pretty comfortable that there's not going to be a recession soon, though, is because even though we've had a long recovery, we haven't had that really big buildup of excess. And so if you look at things like the consumer balance sheet, he's been saving and even continues to save. And so his balance sheet is very much stronger than it was at this point of the previous invest, uh, cycle. If you look at loss rates on credit cards, they've bottomed and are creeping up, but they're still on an absolute level quite low. Right. If you look at corporate debt levels, they also are down relative to where we were at the end of last cycle. Now, the overall debt of the society is about the same, but it's shifted. And so consumers and companies have less debt and the government has more. And the government, well, government debt maybe is a little bit ris less risky because the government can always go and print money and, yes, they can. and make the value of that debt less. Well, you, you, you hit a nail on the head there with that thought. I mean, if you think about a market top, you, the telltale signals aren't there. You don't have rampant IPO activity or M&A activity at this point. You haven't seen a huge shift of investor preference into equities. You haven't necessarily had that market blow off top right now. So I do think that there's a little bit of runway on this market cycle. But as you know, and as I know, it's only a matter of time before the next recession comes. I would argue it's over a year away from this point. But the shot clock has begun, if you will. Yes, well, my partner, Scott Glasser, likes to talk about valuation as a blunt instrument. And I'm going to kind of twist his words a little bit here, but I just want to make sure that I'm not on the wrong end of that instrument, <laughs> given the market is as expensive as it is. You know, what are some of the risk characteristics that you look for in your investments, and how do they inform your investment process? And maybe, do you have an example off the top of your head that, that would make sense to talk about in that context? And so what we really like to do is to own companies that we call high quality. They tend to be companies that Warren Buffett would say have a moat around them. So they have a defensible business model. They have strong and consistent returns. They have a good balance sheet and they have strong management teams. In addition to that, we really care about strong capital management. And by capital management, we mean that we, we want companies to treat their cash appropriately. So we like strong and growing dividend yields. We like big share repurchases, meaning 5% or more of the outstanding in a given year. And we like companies that are careful about their acquisitions. And so let's talk about a company, a very large holding of ours is Comcast. And so in 2006, when we invested in it, we thought that there was an opportunity in there because the cable industry through its history had generated a lot of cash from its operations, but they always had to go and reinvest that cash because they were always building out their networks. And as long as you had copper fiber that, that was carrying stuff, they always had very, very high CapEx. And a limited bandwidth, of course, in that copper fiber. Yep. And so the advantage in 2006 or the change in 2006 was for the past 10 years or so, they had been putting fiber in the ground and had basically built out their n network. And the advantage of fiber over copper is that there's an infinite amount of bandwidth that you can carry over a given fiber. And so that meant that all of a sudden CapEx was going to be declining. So we saw an opportunity in there for a company here that was quite dominant. It was the biggest cable company in the United States with a lot of pricing power that with this cash that they would do good things with it. So they started to pay a, a dividend, and that dividend has, has steadily increased. They did material share repurchases, and then they did the acquisition of NBCU from GE. That's right. And NBCU was a business that it was okay at GE, but it was really mismanaged. And there were a lot of synergies that Comcast had because they were able to go and leverage their bargaining power to go and to sell the content that was being generated at NBC 
through their channels into other providers, and then they were able to go and just run the business better than GE ran it. And so the combination of those two things, which was the explosion in cash flow and the opportunity from an appropriate acquisition, meant that the stock has been absolutely terrific. And we continue to hold a very large piece of Comcast, even though much of the story is played out, because again, it's got those defensive characteristics. So if we go into a recession, cutting that cable is probably not something you're going to do. You probably want your broadband. I was just going to ask you, isn't cord cutting uh, something that is you know, the unspoken negative when you talk about cable providers? But you're right. It, it, if in order to stream Netflix or any of these other services, you're going to need internet connection in order to do so. Yeah, you can't have Hulu unless you've got broadband. And so you're going to have to keep on buying that broadband. And so we don't see that going away. In fact, if anything, we see it growing over time. Interesting. So Mike, can you walk us through how capital preservation and investing in high quality stocks goes hand in hand? When markets get volatile or fall, increasing cash holdings could be a defensive play, but your appreciation strategy tends to keep cash holdings low. So if you could explain how being mostly fully invested supports capital preservation. Well, we're very tough in terms of the prices that we like to pay for our companies. So there, And also we're very tough about the qualities that make a company appropriate for the portfolio. So there's probably only two or 300 names that we consider to be of appropriate quality. But we know all those companies really well and we watch them. And when we see an opportunity, that's when we go and we buy them. And so similarly, if we have a name in the portfolio where it's getting too expensive or where conditions deteriorate, then we'll go and we'll trim it back. Well, great, Mike. Well, I appreciate you being in the studio here with me today. Is there any closing thoughts that, that you'd want to leave uh, with the listeners on, on your thoughts on the market or the, the portfolio or just where we're in you know, versus this market cycle? You never know when the rug is going to get pulled out from you and when things are going to get bad. And it's been a long, long recovery. It's been a terrific stock market and a terrific bull market, but uh, all good things come to an end. Well, it's just one thing to note. If you think about how many days it's been since a 15% correction in the market, it's been over 1,350 days at this point, the third longest streak since we've had a correction of that magnitude. So, you know, we I think we may be dancing for a little bit longer, but that correction is, is always around the corner. But Mike, thank you so much for, for joining me here today. And thank you, everybody, for, for taking the time to listen to us. Jeff, thank you. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of April 24th, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. Thank you.